Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, I'm your host for this very special episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John Haymack, the leading investigator of the ENGINE trial, which explores neoadjuvant duvarlumab plus chemotherapy, followed by adjuvant duvarlumab in patients we resected no small cell lung cancer. Dr. Haymack is the chair of thoracic head and neck medical oncology and a professor in medical oncology and cancer biology at the University of Texas and the Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Haymack. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. We also had the honor to host Dr. Tercia Reese. She's a thoracic medical oncologist at Grupo Oncoclinicas in Salvador Bahia, Brazil. Dr. Reese has nearly 10 years of experience treating no small cell lung cancer and developing new therapeutic combinations for the treatment of no small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer with a particular focus on targeted therapy. Welcome, Dr. Reese, to Lung Cancer Concert. Hello, and John. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. And as we are talking about friends, we're going to be referring each other by first name starting now. So before we start discussing the trial, we want to learn how is the treatment of biomarker negative, no small cell lung cancer, early stage disease at your respective institutions. We have adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapies approved in the United States, but which one is the one that you're using more and why? I will start with John, and then I will go to Tercia. John, what is your current practice? Yeah, so um, we tend to use neoadjuvant uh, therapies here uh, at MD Anderson, and I realize there's a lot of variation. In other places I've practiced, uh, the, the focus has been more on just adjuvant therapies. Uh, for me, I think the key considerations are, first of all, with neoadjuvant therapy, you can see what the response is to the therapy, and that may impact what you do afterwards. And you could potentially downstage patients. So sometimes we have patients who are borderline between, say, a lobectomy and a pneumonectomy, but after tumor shrinkage, uh, we're able to, to do it with just a, a lobectomy or, or sometimes less than that. Um, so those are the reasons we tend to, to lean towards neoadjuvant therapy even before these recent results. I agree with you, John. I like the objective evaluation. Tercia, what are you doing in Brazil? Oh, first of all, it's important to say that there are two completely different realities in Brazil. Around 70% of the population in Brazil does not have health insurance. Unfortunately, the Brazilian public health system does not provide access to immunotherapy. In my clinical practice at Group Oncoclinicas, 90% of all patients have private health insurance and must have, must have access to the new Advent and Advent immunotherapy approved in the U.S. Based on the checkmate 
but there were studies in uh, in preclinical models that said that neoadjuvant uh, immunotherapy looked like it was more active than adjuvant immunotherapy in preclinical models. And this had been shown in breast cancer. We've also seen this in lung cancer. And the reason that may be the case is, you know, when you give neoadjuvant therapy, the tumor is still in place. So the load of tumor antigens is much greater. You still have the lymph nodes that are draining in place. So all the pieces you need to mount a good immune response against the tumor are there. After surgery, all you've got is is likely microscopic metastatic disease, and it's much harder to mount an immune response. So scientifically, we thought that neoadjuvant immunotherapy would probably be more active than adjuvant. And this was subsequently borne out in studies in melanoma, for example, uh, where where they've been compared. So all that was the backdrop. And a number of companies have launched similar studies with neoadjuvant or neoadjuvant plus adjuvant, what we call the perioperative. And I think the data so far is supporting uh, that that neoadjuvant probably gives you more bang for the buck than adjuvant does, but putting the two together is probably going to be better still. Thank you for explaining that. And I think, you know, we have learned about the benefits of neoadjuvant therapy for breast cancer. They have been doing it before us. And I think it also gives us an idea to like, after the surgery is done, to kind of stop and say how much this patient responded, do we need to change uh, strategies? And sometimes it's very hard, and you, John, may agree with this, to talk to patients about adjuvant therapy because, you know, the surgeon took it all out. Why do we need to do chemo now and immunotherapy? Yeah, yeah you know, I agree with you. And as, as Tercia raised, this is really an important issue because, you know, patients understandably are panicked when they're diagnosed with lung cancer. And there's a great urgency to do something quickly. And so it can be very appealing to say, well, let's just cut it out right away. And, you know, if if it isn't something that you've spent a lot of time working on and thinking about, it's a very logical thing. Why not cut it out right away if you can cut it out? And so it takes time to explain to people, well, giving this treatment beforehand could be more effective than cutting it out right away. Uh, You know, and the reason is ultimately it's the metastatic disease that's most likely to uh, uh, cause problems for the patient down the road. And so the things you can do that can fight against the metastatic disease as quickly as possible are going to be what's most important, but it's counterintuitive. And as Tercia raised, there are problems logistically, especially when you've got services that are not well coordinated. If you don't have groups acting in a multidisciplinary way, a patient may see a surgeon and the surgeon may say, let's cut it out right away. And then they may see a medical oncologist who says, well, it may take us six weeks to get a biopsy and wait for results and start therapy. It's not surprising, you know, the the option of cutting it out right away would be more appealing up front. But what we really have to do is educate patients for what the benefits may be of, of getting the appropriate neoadjuvant therapy first. Thank you so much. I, I you know, we need to continue spreading the, the gospel, if it's maybe the right way to say about the benefits of this to the appropriate population. So Tercia, what are your thoughts about this perioperative approach, which includes the introduction of immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting, all within the same treatment regimen? Oh, I- I agree with Dr. John uh, with the strategy to 
to do the both new advent and advent. I see men more posed with the negatives use the new advent immunotherapy approach. Uh, you know, benefits include the potential early eradication of micrometastatic disease, more flexibility in the postoperative treatment, which allows for better patient recovery and provide us the additional with additional prognosis data about the outcome of pathological response. Uh, new advent in chemotherapy doesn't doesn't increase the incidence of adverse events of compromised surgical feasibility, which was a previous concern. And I think one remain negative point is time. And in my in my clinical practice, unfortunately, uh, we we don't have the the reality at the clinical trials at the time, and it takes a lot of time to get out the information necessary to decide whether to implement new advent treatment and the patient ends up going a long time without receiving any treatment. Thank you so much. And, you know, I, I love having conversations during the podcast because we learn from each other. So now it's time to dig a little bit deeper into the trial. This was an auto-presentation at the 2023 AACR annual meeting. John, could you summarize the design of the study for our listeners? Sure. So the, the Aegean study is a randomized uh, phase three global double-blind placebo-controlled study. And it was patients with stage 2A to 3B non-small cell lung cancer. And this is using the AJCC uh, eighth edition. So there are some differences between the seventh and the eighth that are uh, that, that are relevant, like for stage 1Bs. And for this study, patients with T4 tumors for reasons other than size were uh, excluded. And patients were treated with, uh, on one arm, dervalumab uh, with, with platinum, and it could be either cisplatin or carboplatinum-based regimen for four cycles, and then went to surgery, and then were treated with dervalumab for every four weeks for a year. And on the other arm, it was just platinum chemotherapy for four cycles. And then it was placebo after surgery uh, uh, for a year uh, or, or for 12, uh, 12 cycles. And the two primary endpoints were pathologic complete response. This was assessed centrally uh, by the ISLC uh, criteria and event-free survival by blinded uh, independent review. And key secondary points included uh, MPR, uh, or major pathologic response, again, by the ISLC criteria, DFS, OS. And I'll mention that patients with EGFR and ALK were originally allowed on the study, but then as results like DORA came out that said for patients with EGFR mutations, there are other therapies like osimertinib may be more effective. This study was then amended in the middle, and patients with EGFR and ALK were then excluded. So the modified ITT population did not include patients with EGFR and ALK, and it was a total of 740 patients. Uh, the, patients with EGFR are, are actually being presented uh, uh, separately, but that wasn't the, the primary endpoint. And everybody received profiling for EGFR and ALK up front, so we knew everybody's uh, status. So, so that was the design. So, John, I have a 
two questions about this. Will patients were mandatory to have a brain MRI prior to going into the trial? Yeah, you know, because this was an international study, we went with the internet with the uh, standard of care that was the standard in the different places. And brain MRI was recommended for everybody. But because that's not the standard of care everywhere, uh, it wasn't mandated. Uh, I'll point out similarly, pathologic staging of the mediastinum was recommended for everybody. And the vast majority did get pathologic staging. But there are some countries where pathologic staging isn't the standard of care. It's not reimbursed. Uh, so it wasn't mandated. It was just strongly recommended. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that's very important as you know, we have different practices. And my last question about the design is we have the patients have four cycles on neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy, correct? That's correct. It was four cycles. Okay. Uh, so Tercia, as you see the design and you hear from John about the design, what do you think are the strong points uh, when it comes from the, the study design in some areas that you wish the study you know, would have included? Oh, the, the Asian trial was conducted across 20, uh, 222 sites in 28 countries. In Brazil, uh, Brazil and South America made an important contribution to this study with a similar proportion of patients compared to North America. It's a purely robust study. I randomized multicenter phase three trial that will certainly soon change clinical practice. I think it will, it will be of interest for us to find out about the patients who were unable to undergo to surgery after treatment with new advent immunochemotherapy. And they also understand, understand what happened with the patient who, who did not complete the schedule one-year advent immunotherapy. So what you're wondering is what happened to the one that didn't make it to surgery? We know from Checkmate A16 that actually administrative duties or administrative delays was a significant aspect for delaying uh, surgery in these patients. John, do you have any data that you can share with us? Because sometimes the surgeons are the ones who present this part of the trials uh, about the patients that were not able to make it to surgery. Yeah, now that's it's an important question. About 18 or 19% didn't end up making it to surgery. And by the way, those numbers are similar for all the neoadjuvant studies. It's similar for the Checkmate 816, and it's similar for the Keynote 671 study. You know, in, in some cases, it was disease progression. Disease progression was one of the most common reasons for not making it to surgery. In some cases, it was uh, just uh, logistical uh, issues with scheduling. And then in, in a handful of cases, it was uh, complications like pneumonia, illness like COVID. Uh, AGM was conducted in the middle of the COVID crisis. And so um, uh, COVID infections, unfortunately, were relatively uh, uh, common during that. So all, all those were reasons. Now, it's worth pointing out that even studies where surgery is done up front, there's a, su a substantial number of patients that don't make it to surgery. These patients are, are prone to uh, pneumonias, prone to other complications, you know, and uh, it, there have been some studies in, in the past where there was a randomization to surgery versus neoadjuvant therapy. And even there, uh, there's a significant number, uh, even if surgery is scheduled up front, to end up not getting uh, or completing their surgery. 
That's a good point. And I think we're going to hear that now more in trials in which, you know, the trial was conducted in the middle of the pandemic and patients got COVID, right? And the degree of COVID varies, but some patients could gotten very sick and affect the outcomes to surgery. I think the trials that reported during COVID were recruited before COVID was the thing. And the trials that we're reporting now really happen in the peak of the pandemic. And that's something that, you know, I think for Checkmate A16 wasn't that relevant because a lot of the trial didn't happen during the pandemic, but it did for your trial. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there was, um, unfortunately, the the mortality rate from uh, COVID was quite low. It was in the single digits. But early on in COVID, uh, for lung cancer patients, there were mortality rates reported above 25%. So fortunately, it was much lower in the study, but that certainly did impact results. Yeah, and planning for surgery, right? Um, yeah. In 2020, I don't think you would find a surgeon who would be, yeah, I'm going to take it to surgery to a recently yeah. diagnosed COVID-19 patient. Yeah, no, that's right. There were certainly a number of delays And very often, if you were delayed for sufficiently long or couldn't get past three cycles of chemo, you came off study, even though you may get surgery later, but you were considered to, you know, have come off the study at that point. So even though they may have ultimately gotten the right treatment, they were reflected here as not having gone to surgery. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, even in your oral presentation, which is so short, it's hard to explain how COVID affected the study in its entire you know, from the neoadjuvant to the adjuvant setting, it affected all the protocols and what you were intentionally planning to do when the study was assigned. That's right. I mean, you'd like to look at lung cancer specific mortality, but when you design a randomized phase three trial, you know, you don't have the privilege of sort of, you know, tossing out things like uh, uh, COVID infections, you know, that's, that's part of the results. So, yeah. So, the good news is the study was considered positive as it met both its primary endpoints of improved pathologic complete response and event-free survival. John, can you talk to us through the results of the study and where the two most important findings that you want everybody that is listening to remember? Yeah, well, well, thank you. And and you know, as you point out, both primary endpoints of EFS and pathologic complete response were positive. And it meant this at the first possible interim analysis, you know, so the study had pre-planned an interim analysis. And if it was positive there, it uh, we read out the results and otherwise it, it carried on for a later analysis. But because it was positive at the first analysis, uh, the study has a little less maturity than and some others do as well. The median follow-up for censored patients, not for all patients, but the censored one was 11.7 months uh, here. So the um, here the hazard ratio for EFS is 0.68. So that means there's a 32% reduction in the risk of, of, uh, of having an event. And this translated at one year to a reduction from 63. Uh, so the EFS free rate was 63% in the Dervalumab arm and 52% in the control arm. So about an 11% improvement in the two-year EFS free rate. And the one-year EFS free rate was about 9% higher. So, you know, a pretty substantial improvement in your rate of being EFS free at one year or two years. Now, it's worth pointing out that when the, at the time of this analysis, 
uh, about a quarter of patients were still receiving adjuvant uh, therapy. So we would expect to see even greater benefits over time as all those patients uh, fully received the dervalumab because this is before even a lot of them had received all that therapy. So we hope that that difference will uh, grow over time. The other, path, the other major endpoint was pathologic complete response rate. And that um, was 4.3% in the placebo arm. And that's consistent with what we usually see for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And it was 172 in the dervalumab arm. So a difference of 13% in terms of the pathologic complete response. And, and then major pathologic response rate went up by about 21%. So, you know, I think clear and substantial benefits uh, for both endpoints. Thank you for breaking that for us. And I think, you know, the endpoints are evolving in lung cancer, right? Um, particularly when we talk about adjuvant and new adjuvant therapy, we do know that overall survival is the gold standard but for adjuvant and neoadjuvant trials, or in this case, both of them, it would take a very long time to get overall survival data and, you know, I struggle with, yeah, if we wait, a lot of patients will not have access to this regimen, um, but it's also the, all, the the gold standard. So I think and on, in thoracic oncology, we're evolving with these new primary endpoints. Not everything is overall survival. Yeah, I I agree with that. And, and I think that's important because, you know, we're still not doing nearly as well as we would like to with these patients. And if we were, um, you know, curing 98% of them, you might say, well, you know, let's wait uh, an extra few years. The difference is very small. But don't forget, at two years on the chemotherapy alone arm, your, your odds of uh, recurring were about 50%. So if there's something that is well tolerated, doesn't add substantial toxicity, and can improve that by, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13%, uh, to me, it seems well worth uh, uh, doing it before we have the overall survival results. And historically, improvements in EFS have translated to overall survival. So we do have to wait for the overall survival results. But I think we're optimistic for all these studies that have shown an EFS benefit that those will translate to OS benefits. Well, I, I think those are all good points. And, you know, we are learning like we and we shouldn't often compare what lung cancer is to other diseases because the outcomes are not the same. And, you know, it's not the same that the more common, you know, adju new adjuvant trials. And I think we we suffer sometimes for wanting to compare, but 30% of patients don't have a, the possibility to go into the next line of therapy. That's a lot of patients when we talk about that. So, Tercia, as you're looking at the study, we know the majority of the patients that were enrolled, nearly 70% were male. You know, we current or former tobacco users, and the division was around 50%, approximately, between adenocarcinoma and squamous cell. What are your thoughts about the patient selection in the trial, and do these patients are similar to the patients that you see in clinic in Brazil? You know, that's a good question. I agree that the inclusion of squamous cells was important. And as, as you know, these patients are mainly associated with smoking and they tend to show um, a more marked response to immunochemotherapy. Perhaps this inclusion of patients with squamous histology 
can explain the higher number of male patients, Dr. John? Yeah, I, I think that's right. So, you know, I think in this study, first of all, when you consider that it excluded patients who had EGFR or ALK who are more likely to be female, you know, we saw a, a higher percentage of squamous histology uh, than you might expect up front. And we saw a higher percentage of males uh, here. You know, uh, about 70% were males in the overall uh, study. So I suspect uh, that does have to do with the fact that uh, in both cases that we're excluding patients with uh, EGFR and ALK who are more likely to be female. But it is um, it, it is interesting that in this and other studies, uh, they have such a male predominance. And as we continue to talk about the patient selection is, John, um, I was looking at the trial and we know that this is a global trial over 200 sites. Big number of patients were Asian or white. Do you know the reports around 5% of patients or other background? Do Are those patients from Latin America? How much of that will be similar to the population we treat in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, well, thank you for raising it. And, and I think this is a challenge that we all face in the community is how to get broader and more representative enrollment in clinical studies. One of the things that's notable about this study, it was a large global study, over 200 sites internationally. And in this study, unlike many, there were roughly similar numbers of patients enrolled in North America and in South America, about 11% uh, in, in both on, on the drabalumab arm. So, you know, th this study actually has a relatively larger uh, representation of Hispanic uh, whites than uh, other studies uh, do. But uh, with that said, even though we're, we're happy this had a large representation from South America, I think all of us need to really continue to work every day to have greater representation of all races uh, here, you know, so uh, including African-Americans uh, that we know in the U.S. is is always lower than we would like on, on these clinical studies. I think that's an important challenge that all of us face. And John, thank you for breaking that down, because I by reading by looking at the presentation and reading the paper, I wouldn't really know that 11% of these patients came from Latin America. So I think that's very good information for our listeners to know that we have Hispanic patients that were included in the trial. Yeah, th th that's right. And there, you know, of, of course, race uh, it being different than the, the, the region here uh, or, or the ethnicity. Um, so, uh, so that's right. So I think this study has very good representation from South America and the Hispanic population. But outside of white and Asians, I think like like the vast majority of other studies out there, uh, this has a lower representation than we would like. Yeah, well, thank you for that. We are, you know, so much to talk about. So we have only a few questions left as we run out of time. Tercia, now that you have all this information about the trial, where are some of the patients that you wouldn't consider good candidates for the engine regimen? Good question. Uh, it's important to remember that new advent therapy should not be used to attempt to induce resectability in patients who don't already meet criteria for resectability on initial evaluation. Some oncogenic drivers, such as EGFR or ALK mutations, have been shown to be associated with less benefit from the PD-1 inhibitors. Testing for PD-1 stats and EGFR and the mutations 
should be done before administering new adjuvant therapy. To answer your question, I would not consider patients with entry disease or EGFR or ALK mutations good candidates of the Asian region. I think I agree with you. I think we remain, you know, be cautious that patients that may already not be resectable may put in these regimens, you know, um, with that plan. And I think that just mentions or reminds us of the importance of working with surgeons and, you know, as a multidisciplinary team, I think we all need to work together and improve communication. So I'm going to ask the same question to you, John. What are some of the patients that you wouldn't consider good candidates for the regimen? Yeah, so well, so with the eligibility here, they're pretty broad. Uh, again, it's uh, stage 2A to 3B. I think for patients with N2 disease, there's pretty wide variation in what people consider resectable. There's no single definition. And I think in this study, one of the things that was indicated is they had to be considered resectable at the onset of the study. Uh, I think there's sometimes a practice to take patients who are not resectable at the beginning, but we're hoping they would become resectable, um, but that's not the population that was tested here. So that's one. Now, here we explicitly excluded EGFR and ALK, and there'll be data supported uh, presented for the EGFR population at World Lung. I, for me, there's a debate for the other driver mutations. Let's say somebody has a RET fusion, ROS1 fusion, NTRAC fusion, a HER2 mutation, uh, or an atypical EGFR mutation for which osimertinib is not a standard therapy. These are patients we expect are going to get less benefit from immunotherapy, but we don't have an approved agent to use for them. So, so those are the ones where I think it's much more debatable. I think we would expect the benefit would be less uh, from immunotherapy, but we don't have another option you know, to offer them. So, th so that's where I really give it a lot of thought as well. If somebody has another driver, even if we don't have a targeted therapy uh, that's approved for it, I, I really think hard about the benefits in that situation. I love that. And I think ultimately it's a good discussion with patients. I have patients that I'm like, let's do neoadjuvant. And sometimes they know they're mentally and sometimes they may not have the performance status. So I think the patient individual assessment is what it comes to is the patient's circle belief, the plan for surgery. And when I have a doubt about the stage, I am very prone to EVA, so mediastinoscopy. There's nothing better than looking into the microscope to see if the lean leave node is or not up affected by the cancer. Um, as we're coming to the end of the conversation, John, is any additional information you would like to share with your audience? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think I can paint a bit of a picture of this space now. I mean, I think all at once we've had these rush of positive results for early stage disease. And it's really um, you know, we, we, it's a blessing to have so many different options, assuming they are FDA approved of really effective regimens. You know, it's uh, it's hard for a lot of people to remember, or they may not have been treating lung cancer patients, but I, I've been treating them for about 25 years. And, you know, back then, chemotherapy became a standard. The benefit for adjuvant chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy is really modest. I mean, it's significant but it's about a five-year improvement in EFS. 
now we're getting therapies that are much less toxic and have a much greater benefit. But now the challenge becomes if somebody gets a neoadjuvant immunotherapy and chemo, if they have a complete pathologic response, their outcomes are fabulous. But what about the patients who don't have a complete pathologic response? How do we intensify their regimen, you know, so that uh, their likelihood of recurring is is less? I think that's really going to be our big challenge in the upcoming years is how do we intensify the patients who don't have an initial response to chemo and immunotherapy? I think that's a very good point. And it's about the patients with a complete pathology response with neoadjuvant. I think there's a lot of questions. Which one of those patients should we commit to the one-year immunotherapy? Which patients should get the chemo? And I think having so many options is good for our patients. And as a person who has used a lot of neoadjuvant, uh, because I'm lucky to have great surgeons, the possibilities of completing the treatment tend to be higher if they're able to get some of the new adjuvant therapy. Sometimes it's very hard to complete all treatment in the adjuvant setting. So I think in the sandwich approach, you increase the chances that the patient will get therapy before, after, or both. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think we're going to evolve to, you know, starting with the the, the sandwich or the perioperative uh, approach outlined in the Aegean or the Keynote 671, but we're going to our next challenge is going to be how do we get more tailored with that uh, that strategy then and pick out the groups who don't have the PET-CRs and what do we add on top of that to reduce the likelihood of outcomes of recurrence even further? Because uh, even though it's a lot of progress, um, we still have a long way to go because likelihood of recurrence is still quite substantial, especially for stage three disease. That is very correct. Um, but I have to tell you, I haven't been uh, in practice as long as either of you, but having to start receiving these phone calls from the surgeons to tell me we have a complete pathology response is something that we didn't have, what, three, four years ago? So getting those phone calls is the serotonin sometimes I need in clinic. Tercia, any additional information that you'd like to share with your audience? Oh, I agree with you. I, I have the um, great revolution at the treatment at lung cancer. And we we can see in, in live with the, this progression and the revolution, the, the treatment, it's so great. I think the great important point is the multidisciplinary discussion. It's the, the point um, before decide the the treatment the the approach the the better treatment treatment i think it's um, important to to multidisciplinary discussion it's a, a important thing to every center um that treatment with lung cancer thoracic oncology i think that's a very good point and like science we cannot do science alone science is a team effort and the same thing to apply to lung cancer. We can no cure lung cancer, at least we work all together. So I'm gonna summarize the conversation. The engine trial data is still evolving. We're gonna continue to hear about this trial. The regimen is not FDA approved, as well as other perioperative regimens or sandwich regimens. We have neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapies approved, but the combination is still you know, continues to read, the data continues to mature. 
Um, so this has been a great discussion. Thank you to Drs. Haymack and Dr. Reese for being so generous with your time. And of course, for all the work you're both doing and for both leading in the field. Thank you for joining us. Okay. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website, islc.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you will tune in regularly to give us a listen. And remember, let's all meet and work conference this year and next year. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, and our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.